Welcome to an Anxious Poets podcast mini-series on the cusp of two realms. Synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds. Episode 1, The Call of the Unwritten. Hello, I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. It's been a while. I realised that the last episode, A Big Old Laugh with Eva Scott, my daughter, was in July. I've been a bit caught up with another podcast called Grim Up North that I do with my good friend Matt Carr. That's pretty full on. And so, as the autumn is beginning to bite, I see the leaves turning on the trees and you can feel the colder weather coming. And the political news is so difficult. The economic news is difficult. I thought it would be good to explore something over a number of podcasts, four actually, uh, in pretty quick succession. These are called On the Cusp of Two Realms, Synchronicity, the Interleaving of Our Inner and Outer Worlds. Wow. That's a handful of a title. I've been reflecting on the four collections of poems that I have, three of which have been published and one I'm hoping to publish soon. And looking through them, thinking about them, thinking about how I wrote them, thinking about the fact that I'm an anxious person, um, that I have had mental health issues for a good proportion of my life, that my mum had mental health issues, that people in my family have had them, that those inner and outer worlds are really important and they have an alchemy, a connection. The things we do with our lives, the jobs we do, the people that we fall in love with, the people that we are in our families, the people that we make friends with, the people that we fall out with, all of that outer world. And then that inner world of our dreams and our, what Jung would call our psyche or our soul, our spiritual lives, our mental health, the things that trouble us, the things that make us joyful, That interleaving of those two worlds is really what most of my poetry seems to be about. In fact, most of my life has been about either the collision of those worlds or the synchronicity of those two worlds. What do I mean by synchronicity? Jung defined synchronicity, I mean, he wrote a whole massive tract about it but here's a, a useful sentence synchronicity a meaningful coincidence of two or more events where something other than probability of chance is involved a meaningful coincidence of two or more events where something other than the probability of chance is involved well what does that mean 
Well, it's those moments where you have a sense that there's something going on. I think people colloquially say, oh, it was meant to be, or um, I just knew this was the right thing. Sometimes people walk into a house that they're viewing and they know that this is going to be their home. Sometimes people bump into each other and collide in some way and they know that they're going to be partners for life. It's, it's when things from the inner and I think things from the inner and outer world collide in some way they interleave in some way and you know this is something I need to build my life on and I know that that sounds very airy-fairy and ethereal and why would you build your life on this so hold that question Hold that sense of, what's in, what on earth is he talking about? Or maybe, yeah, I've had those experiences, but are they really that important? You know, <laughs> Peter Kay has that great description of a funeral, and he's and 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 he's saying they're all standing around the grave, and um, <laughs> an empty bag of cheese and onion crisps flutters over the grave, and somebody says. Oh, that's Harold. He loved those crisps. He loved cheese and onion crisps. He's telling us he's all right. And and he kind of mocked that. And yes, I I get that. We we have <laughs> we have a grasping at straws sense of synchronicity. But this is a much deeper thing. This is, and and you'll you'll experience this hopefully through this podcast and through the other three episodes. This is something much more deeply rooted in our psyche, in our experience of life. And it goes back in history, it goes back in mythology, it goes back in spirituality and theology. This is the deep resonance and echo of one world in the other. And during these episodes of this mini-series, um, I want to be in sort of um, conversation with a number of partners. Uh, the first one that I'm going to quote now are the Desert Fathers and Mothers. These were people in the second, third century. After Christianity began to be more accepted and people weren't thrown to the lions, um, the empire was beginning to accommodate Christianity. There were groups of people who wanted a more um, ascetic, more challenging way of expressing their belief in, in Christ, uh, their Christianity, if you like. And they went out into the wild deserts of Egypt and Israel and they sought to be alone in a fierce landscape to find that inner world the inner world was calling them it was in a way erupting into their outer world their dissatisfaction with their outer world was echoed by that inner eruption and they went out and they lived in caves you can go and see them even now and they were in loose communities 
And thankfully, their sayings were collected. And there, I suppose, I'm no expert on Zen Buddhism, but they're a bit like koans. They're, they're like um, a, 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 a couple of sentences that really challenge you, that you can chew over and sit with and meditate on for a long time. And um, there's this beautiful book uh, introduced by Henry Newen called Desert Wisdom, The Sayings from the Desert Fathers, and I would put mothers too, a translation and art by Yushi Nomura. So there's lovely sort of Zen-type pictures that go with them. So here's one. And they were called Abbas and Amas. Abba meaning father, Amma meaning mother. Abba Anthony said, The time is coming when people will be insane. And when they see someone who is not insane, they will attack that person saying, You are insane because you are not like us. They will attack that person saying, You are insane because you are not like us. I think when that inner world erupts into your outer world, and Jung would describe this eruption of the unconscious as um, neurosis, as what we might call a mental health episode. Um, it can be all sorts of things. It can be a euphoria. It can be a depression. But it, it, when you listen to it, when you engage with it and start to take notice of it, then <laughs> there's an element in which you might be considered slightly mad. Um, I think when you really begin to discover and obey the synchronicities of your life, you do look a bit mad. And I'd like to speak up for the anxious and depressed among us. The world we live in, anxiety and depression, mental health issues, are probably a healthier reaction in some ways. I know that sounds crazy. It's all part of this insanity, maybe. But I remember sitting in an airport terminal, I think it was Terminal 5 at Heathrow, waiting to fly to America. And just thinking about the whole process from getting off the tube, going through security in this huge place full of lights, things that people are trying to sell you in duty free, just the whole environment. And then you're going to get on this little tube that goes across the ocean at hundreds of miles an hour, defying gravity. And no wonder people get anxious. It's a natural reaction. And our lives are like that sometimes. They're full of, of noises and difficulties and, and bright lights and, and stuff that is intimidating. The world is intimidating. So reflecting on that koan, if you like, when people will be insane, there's an insanity about the world we live in. And when they see someone who's not insane, they'll attack that person saying, you're insane because you're not like us. Because you're not like us. 
And I think what these synchronicities do is they erupt or they emerge or they creep up on us and they ask us questions about the way we're living. The external world. This, this series is called The Cusp Between Two Realms, the inner and the outer. These reactions of anxiety or depression or euphoria or transformation of some kind, they are when we are experiencing that liminality, that cusp between the inner and the outer. And the first collection of poems that I published, The Call of the Unwritten, articulates that. The idea that something inside me, something unwritten, was creeping up on me all through my adult life till I was 50 when I actually started to take the idea of writing poetry seriously. These things were the synchronicities and I'll come back to that uh, in a moment because I want to talk about another synchronicity, another interleaving of the inner and outer worlds for me. Uh, I, in my 40s, early 40s, was involved in leading a Christian Catholic community called the Maltfriskans and I'd left that community in my late 20s when I decided not to be ordained. And I certainly fell under a cloud. I think people were very disappointed in me. And then was encouraged to come back to it and ended up leading it. And I thought that that had solved a lot of my inner conflicts, that being the leader, but it turned out that it hadn't. And that there were external conflicts in the community that were very difficult. And I went into full-on saviour, superhero mode, trying to fix it all. And of course, it was not fixable. And that was a huge inflation uh, of my own, that I, I thought I was capable of that. And I sort of came crashing down to earth. And during that crashing down to earth, I came across uh, a priest called Richard Rohr. Um, he had led a similar type of community. He came and spoke to the community and I felt he spoke a lot of truth. Um, and so I went out for a retreat with him in New Mexico and I felt utterly drawn to do that. And when I got to New Mexico, it, it had a weird sensation for me of coming home, a totally different environment to Sheffield. It's high desert, it's warm all the time in the daytime. It drops to being cold. I went at Christmas time in the in the evening. Cobalt blue skies, no humidity, um, deserts and adobe architecture. It's just really beautiful. It's a really beautiful place. Um, it's also the place where um, Breaking Bad was filmed. So it does have a dark side. Um, and Richard gave me a, a seven-day retreat, which he led for me. And it was an act of incredible generosity that he probably doesn't even remember. But for me, it was it was where that interleaving of my inner and outer worlds, I had to admit that I had failed. 
and that I didn't have the answers. I didn't know what to do. Uh, and he said, why don't you come out in the summer? I'm doing a men's rites of passage. Why don't you come out with your family in the summer if you can afford it and have a holiday? This is a beautiful place to have a holiday and, and, and do the men's rites of passage. I think it will help you. And again, I had that sense that this was the right thing to do. And off we headed in the summer. I booked onto it. We went with two wonderful friends, Aileen and Jenny. Um, Aileen, who died recently. Uh, yesterday, I was um, at her memorial service. She was an extraordinary woman, had a heart transplant, lived life to the full. And we went with them and I took my three kids. We had a brilliant holiday. And... I, they drove me up to Ghost Ranch where the Rites of Passage happen, which is in northern New Mexico, and it's where Georgia O'Keeffe, the artist, lived, the woman who painted those sort of cattle skulls against um, a terracotta desert background and calla lilies. They're, they're beautiful paintings. She was an extraordinary woman. The Rites of Passage happened in a place where she lived, and we were given dormitories to sleep in, it was rough. It immediately told you this wasn't, you know, your your average comfortable retreat. Uh, we were in bunk rooms. It, it had been a place where they'd had summer camps years ago for kids. Um, and there was this sort of aircraft hangar type building that we did all the rituals and talks in that Richard spoke to us and we did all these rituals. Also, it sounds rather weird, but... It was, again, uh, the rituals in the mornings were devised by someone who I came to know, have come to know, and would call a friend, a guy called Stephen Gamble. He was an artist, he was a, a, an actor, he understood drama, and he had designed around these pieces of scripture that Richard had given him three rituals that we as participants people volunteered the night before to be part of them and then you learnt them overnight and you acted them out in the morning as a kind of meditation, a prayer ritual, whatever you want to call it. And the very first one was, I'd never seen anything like it before because he told me the story later that Richard had given him these three pieces of scripture uh, and they were doing the first rites of passage and he'd had six months to come up with these rituals, and he still hadn't. And they started the rites of passage, and he still hadn't. And he was he there was to be one the morning after the night that the the the, the rites started. And Richard started talking about midlife in his talk. Richard's brilliant at talking. And he said, you know, midlife comes towards you and you can see it coming and you go, ah, 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 as it comes towards you. And suddenly Stephen heard that sound and the whole drama that he devised fell into place in his head and he ran down to the library at Ghost Run and he wrote it down and within 20 minutes he was teaching it to a group of 12 men who then acted it out the next morning. And... I don't want to say what the ritual was because I think for people who go on it, it needs to be, it would be a, 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 spot, a, a plot spoiler. But it involves 
blood, not real blood, and it involves a powerful uh, fracturing experience that the guys act out. And it, it, it blew my socks off, as they say. Um, and then after it, which is one of the genius parts of the rites of passage, is you can't go and have a cup of coffee and talk yourself out of it. You're sent off for an hour on your own. And I was sent off for an hour on my own, and I went into an arroyo, which is a like a dry riverbed. When there are floods, the, the, the water runs through them, but most of the time they're, they're just dry riverbeds. And I sat in this, in this canyon, in Ghost Ranch, in a desert, and I, I was inwardly shaken. I could feel myself trembling by what I had witnessed. And it was all about, there's a, there's a prayer in it which says, you know, let us go into the cave of our wounds where we don't know the way through. And that's where I felt I was. And suddenly I felt addressed by a voice. I don't know whether it was the voice of God. I don't know if it was my own voice. I don't know where it came from, but it was it was very clear. And it said, good, I'm glad I've got you out here, finally. How would it be if you raised your family, you tended your garden, and then you died? You raised your family, you tended your garden, and then you died. And I, I remember thinking, okay. And bear in mind that I'd grown up in this Catholic charismatic community. You know, I'd been introduced to a Catholicism that was about obedience, about submitting to the will of God, about being pious. I was called Holy Adrian when I was in the Montfriscan community. I was overplaying all my virtues and hiding from all my sins, if you like. And so I was like, okay, that sounds okay. And then this other part of me that I'd been underplaying came screaming out of the cupboard and pardon my language and went, fuck off. You mean no recognition, no approbation no affirmation you know i look after my family i look after a garden and then i die you're kidding me i'm not that's not enough and i remember thinking there's there's a particular mystic called charles de foucault who founded the little brothers and sisters of jesus uh, anyone who's a Catholic will have heard of him. And he went off into the desert to live this way of life. He wrote a rule and, and a couple of people came and went, but no one ever followed him. And then he was killed by the Tuareg tribesmen. And they found his writings and a religious order flowered in, in the light of what he wrote and the way he lived. And I was thinking, okay, I'll take that option even. But, but you know, I, I, I didn't come out here, you know, for, for no recognition and, and I went through all that in my inner world. And then there was just this thunderous silence. In the canyon, in my soul, there was no other reply. 
And it became clear to me that that silence was saying, if you can't get this, if you, if you can't find happiness, find fulfillment in what has just been described in raising your family, which, you know, these are metaphors, but they're also hugely practical. I had three children. If you can't tend your garden, and, you know, we've got a big garden here, which takes some looking after. But th for me, the garden began to feel like that which is right in front of you, the natural world right in front of you, the, the garden of your life. If you can't tend that, and if you can't learn how to die, in other words, learn how to let go, how to move through each phase of your life, die to the things you need to die to, You'll, you'll, your life will never work. You'll never be happy. And that was right at the beginning. And I, I remember when I got, you know, I went through the whole of the rites of passage and all sorts of things happened. And it was a profound experience. It was profound being with Richard Raw. But that moment in that Arroyo, that was it. That's the thing I remember the most. And when I... So we were bussed back to Albuquerque uh, and I got off the coach and Wilma was at the centre, Richard's centre with Aileen and Jenny and the kids waiting for me. And she said, when you got off the coach, I realised I didn't want to ask you anything about what had happened. You looked like something had blown you wide open. You looked incredibly vulnerable, incredibly open. Your eyes were like a complete window onto your soul and you needed time to process it and and I've needed I mean that was 2002 that was 20 years ago and it's I'm still processing it now that synchronicity that took me there that that interleaving of my inner and outer worlds was such a powerful collision and I heard it but that part of me that was saying, oh, hang on. And the other thing was, I lost my dad when I was 11. I was desperate for a father. I thought it was Richard Raw. I thought it was the priest that ran the Montfriscan community, Father May. I was just desperate for someone to tell me, you, you, you're doing all right, son. You're okay. Um, to bless me in some way. And, and that got me into a lot of trouble because I couldn't find my own agency, my own sense of who I was without sacrificing that for the blessing of some older man, some, you know, father figure. So I didn't hear what was really said to me and I kept running after, I probably still do, affirmation, approbation, uh, fathering, all of those things, understandably. But I really didn't hear, and, you know, I think we all do that. We have those moments of deep synchronicity, but it's hard to really listen to them because there's so much of the rest of our lives that's going in the opposite direction. So I didn't really listen 
I kept, you know, I decided I wanted to be more involved with the men's work and I didn't want to just be involved, I wanted to run it. I came back to the UK, we got it going. You know, I became a ritual elder, the thing that Stephen Gamble did, then I became the weaver, the thing that Richard Raw did. You know, I was integral to the whole thing. I was. I became a spiritual director at that time. I got 25, 30 people that I saw every month. I was trying to write uh, my first collection of poetry. I, I put all my spiritual direction into one week a month so I could have other time to write. I was just piling on pressure onto myself. And my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. My kids were going through secondary school. That was challenging and difficult. They were having their own difficulties. My wife was having her life, her own difficulties. She worked as a chaplain in the children's hospital. I'm almost talking fast just to give you the impression, that the, the understanding of how crammed my whole life was. And again, it was brought to a juddering halt by a loss. The loss of my mother. Um... After my dad died, I'm an only child. Until I married Wilma, she was my significant other, really. Um, especially because I was training for the priesthood and I was celibate. Um, we were very close. And she had had a bad nervous breakdown in her 50s, tried to commit suicide twice, been in a mental hospital for four or five months. She'd really come through her own night sea journey. And I'll come back to that maybe in another episode. But, you know, and we'd had a real ups and downs uh, in life. I think she was part of the family I was raising in some ways. I was caring for her um, as she got older and she was on her own. And we as a family, we, we looked after her. We took her to Albuquerque once. Um, we used to take her on holiday with us. She was definitely, well, my kids at her funeral after she died, said she wasn't really like a grandma. She was like a third parent. And and it's true. Um, and I went through that strange thing where as, as you get older and you become an adult, you begin to be more like a parent to your parents. Um, that strange transition. She was very well until she died, fortunately. But she died suddenly. Um... I think she had an embolism and we found her. Uh, she was lying on her kitchen floor dead and a little dog was running around her. And that was a huge shock and very painful. And I, this was part of that learning to die. I remember my first instinct when we found her was to light a candle and pray. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't a pious gesture. It wasn't because I'd converted to Catholicism. It was a complete instinctual gesture that this was a sacred moment and I had to somehow mark it. And we had a funeral and, and we did all those things that you would do. I mean, she left her affairs in incredibly good order. And she died on the eve of the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, who was, a, as you will know, a, a, a saint very close to my heart. Not just a saint, a human being close to my heart. And um, 
I, you know, found different ways to grieve for her. Um, and a year later, I wanted to do something. You know, when you come to that um, that anniversary, you don't want it to just be the day when you think, oh, that this was this was the time we went up to her house. This was when we found her. This is what we were doing. And I said, you know, I'd love us all as a family to go to a CC. And my wife said, we can't take the kids out of school. Why don't you go on your own? Why don't you make it a pilgrimage? So I did. Um, I went, I flew out on my own. I took my mum's ashes in a little drinks container. I remember thinking in the airport, what if they open this? There's white powder in a drinks container. I might be arrested. Anyway, they didn't. Um, and we got to a CC, me and my mum's ashes. I remember thinking, she said to me, you could have taken me when I was alive, because I did quite often say to her, I'd love to take you to Rome and Assisi. So I had that kind of funny voice of my mother in my head. But on the the 3rd of October in Assisi, the, that's the day that Francis actually died. And strangely, it was also the day my grandmother died, my mum's mum. It was either the 3rd or the 4th. So this was a kind of weird synchronicity in itself when the outer and the inner world collide into leave and so I thought to myself if I wake up on the the feast the day after she died early I'll go to mass at the tomb of St Francis and and pray for my mum and think about her and I, I did I, I didn't I set an alarm I, the window was open uh, woke up at five o'clock got up and the mass was at six and I was walking through the dim dawn glimmering light and you go through like a narrow street and I was walking on and I looked down and I thought there was a spider moving around on the street and I was a bit transfixed by it and then I looked up and this white feather was floating down zigzagging down and I put out my left hand and it landed square in my palm and I shut my palm and it was an electric moment. And then I went into the mass and this, so this is from the collection called The Call of the Unwritten and this is the poem that I wrote about it. It's called The Song of a Motherless Son. I went to Assisi to recall my mother one year after her lonely cross. I need to evade sorrow's smother one year after my searing loss. Carrying grief in my unwashed hair, I came at night to the Umbrian plain. The city of peace was glowing there, a gleam of mercy through a squall of pain. I trod the steps of Francis' feet and only went where I was led. To open my soul I did not eat, but trudged uphill with an aching head. There I found this we his weathered figure, a bronze homage to holy rest, body unfolded in tranquil stature, gazing into the summoning west. 
I carried a box of silver sorrow, the cremation of her time-worn days, around his head an ashy halo, a symbol of my dismal haze. The shock of loss was still my psalm, as I had reached the end of tether, an open window the evening's balm, as I laid myself on a bed of weather. So I said to myself, if I should wake, the saint's day mass I would take. Dawn's soft dimness greeted my feet in the narrow pink stone street, spidery movement on pavement cobble, bending me low to broken hobble. Glancing upward I found its source, a white shone feather's downward course. I raised and opened my left hand, it landed like water on hard-baked sand. I felt like one who is singled out, chosen as broken, a man of doubt. I curled my hand around its grace, it touched my soul like a mother's face. In the darkened crypt of the barefoot saint, I knelt as tears washed away constraint. The trauma died as they broke the bread, and wine woke a mother to stand in her stead. The trauma died as they broke the bread, and wine woke a mother to stand in her stead. On the day before, I'd fasted and I'd walked up to a hermitage, the Cacieri, where Francis often went to pray. And there's this extraordinary statue of him laying on the floor, a bronze statue, life-size, looking up at the stars. And I sprinkled her ashes around it. And that experience of that feather, I know I, I was talking about Peter Kay laughing about um, Chris Packets and all that, but this was a powerful moment of synchronicity. I, I felt like something reached out to me and said, it, it's you, you're okay. You're being addressed by this experience. There is something deep at work in you. And when I went into the mass, I was standing next to a proper Italian mama, little, little tubby woman, kind face. And they sang a song from, from the film Brother, Son, Sister Moon. And it set me off crying. And she was trying to comfort me. But the more she did it, the more she reminded me of my mum and the more it made me cry. And, and I just, the tears flooded out of me. But the trauma of, of that sudden death, my inner resources were activated. Something, I, I, I tried to express it at the end of that poem, the wine woke a mother to stand in her stead. That the inner mother, that inner parent, came alive in me and started to look after me. And it, it took me back to that idea of raising your family, that, that, you know, these resources are within us in some way. So it's that activation of, of inner resources that, that I want to come to now. Here's another piece from The Call of the Unwritten. It's called What My Migraines Taught Me. They always start with a pinking sheared flash across my vision. Then a numbness in the fingers and the feet. My speech is next, as if my words are jigsaw pieces and none of them will fit. I have to lay down the last to go of my thoughts. Nothing makes sense. But that is the startling thing. There is still a me beyond sense, beyond move, beyond scrutiny. Like Aragorn sitting in the corner of a crowded inn, 
or the sound of Gandalf's staff on the round green door of my interrupted life. At first I was scared that my migraines would trap me unawares in the middle of the traffic of my life, but now I know they introduce me to the stranger that is my soul, and he is there with his travel-stained boots guiding me, waiting for me to ask him, where to now? But I now know, now I know, they introduce me to the stranger that is my soul, and he is there with his travel-stained boots guiding me, waiting for me to ask him, where to now? That's what synchronicities do. My, my migraines were, I, I haven't had one for a long time, thank God. I had some homeopathy and it actually helped cure them. Uh, but I, I literally couldn't speak. My speech came out like gobbledygook. And, um, and then I couldn't think. I couldn't, and I just had to lie in a darkened room. But I realised, as the poem says, I was still there. There is a deeper me my self and it introduced me to that deeper me it activated it um and 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 a big part of that was learning to write poems was to take those synchronicity moments and hold them find out what they were teaching me Through the men's work, we went away for a weekend into the Peak District and we all had to bring something to share. We'd make a big fire, we camped out, we slept under the stars actually. <clears throat> and someone had brought, he brought his car up to the fire and he said, I need you to listen to this. And he put this tape on, this is how long ago it was, and it was a poet called David White reading his poetry. And I said to him, wow, I've never heard anyone read poetry like that before. That's incredible. And something awoke in me that went way back to when I was 15. And I, the only O-level I got at school was English literature. And it was because of Dylan Thomas. I read Dylan Thomas's poems, as I've said on other podcasts, and they, they, they awoke something in me. And I remember looking at his writing shed that sits above his house on a breakneck of rocks uh, in Larne in, in, in South Wales and thinking, God, I would love that life of a poet. And then that dis disappeared. But it came back to me when I heard this David White reading his poetry, reciting his poetry. And it, I searched him out on the internet and I found that he was doing a series of um, what he called a salon series, which was three two-day events through a year at a hotel in the Cotswolds and you went down uh, and you met with him we had a meal with him and then he'd share stuff with us and we'd share stuff with each other and the first one I went to I thought it would all be people interested in writing poetry I didn't realize he'd got this huge constituency of people in the management world management coaches and all these kind of high-powered people so I'm sitting in this he, he always did them in a circle um, and he, he asked us, he's very good at, at asking you to root things in your body. 
and he asked us to say how we were physically feeling. And I remember saying, I feel a sort of feathery uncertainty. It was on the verge of anxiety, I realise now. It, there is that weird cusp between anxiety and excitement. And um, he said, well, sit with that over the next couple of months until we meet again. And I, I not only sat with it, I started to write about it. And I wrote this poem, which is the title poem of the collection, The Call of the Unwritten, because that's what was waking up in me. Each of us, I think, has a sort of calling to some kind of creativity or some kind of work, some kind of dedication. And this was what was waking up in me. And, and we have different works and different dedications in different phases of our, of our lives. And this was mine. So this is the call of the unwritten. And it, it begins with a quote from Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill. Time would take me up to the swallow thronged loft. And he, they, they, you know, the commentary I read that he thought by the shadow of his hand is the next part of the line, that somehow this was his writing had taken him into the swallow thronged loft, the company of poets. So I wrote this piece. A feathery uncertainty in the swallow-thronged loft. I am tongue-tied in a company of singers, these fleet poets of the air. Yet well-fed and ready for flight, I tremble on the claw-pocked ledge and wait. Wait for my turn to squeeze through the tiny round chance that leads to the sky. Never before has the call felt so inexorably feral, nor the wind so giddy. Then the instinctual draw rises in my feather-bound chest and I burst out of the loft like an arrow at a target, though no target I have ever seen. Sweeter than the nectar of the honeysuckle is this jubilation of flight, suicidal to the prey-seeking self that kept me loft-bound for so long in constant comparison to finer feathers. Can I trust my inner compass and continue this migratory flight to a rewritten me? Can I accept the unnamed future whispering in fragile beating wings? A flight that captures the fierce jeopardy of living so I can render its path for others to read. A slow crossing to an undisclosed country with a chorus of chanters in whose throng I have found my voice and besides... The loft is behind me now. And besides, the loft is behind me now. At the second salon, a friend that I'd made from Sheffield, we were split into pairs and I read her the piece I'd written. She said, you have to read that to the group. And I was like, those two parts of me, again, one part of me was like, I'm not doing that. Not in front of him, you know this world-renowned poet, I'm not reading my one of my first pieces. And the other part of me was, oh, I'd love to do that. And she spoke to that part and she said, you need to do this. So he, he said, has anybody got anything to share? And he looked at me and I said, oh, well, I've written this piece. It's not very good. It's one of my first poems, blah, blah, blah. I apologise for it. Read it really quickly and then said, so I know, you know, it leads a lot of work, blah, blah. And he went, whoa, stop. I want you to read that piece again, but I don't want you to comment on it at the beginning and I want you to be silent when you've finished it. And I read it again and I, I, it actually happened. I shot out of the loft. I burst out of it and flew 
out of that circle of people. And it was an extraordinary experience. My inner world collide. well it didn't collide, it flew through into my outer world. And I felt vulnerable and naked and exhilarated and I felt like I'd taken a step on a on a road that that would take me a long way. And it has. Because my inner world knew what to say. When he, he activated it by saying, how do you feel physically? Earth it in, in the physical world. A feathery uncertainty. And so the inner world sometimes can tell you what's really going on. And I want to read one last piece from this book. It's the first poem. Because this was when I really started to listen on that cusp between the outer and the inner. I was driving home one night from uh, where I did my spiritual direction training over the peaks and the clouds were literally laying on the hills. And, and it reminded me of a painting that I'd seen of St. Francis in Assisi, another synchronicity. And it's when Francis strips all his clothes off and gives them back to his father and begins his life of poverty. And Giotto, the painter, has the hand coming out of a cloud with a thumb sticking up, like, this is right, God approves of this. And I started thinking, yeah, but that hand can do all sorts of things. So I wrote this piece, it's called Taking Stock. How would it feel if... Out of the darkening grey of dust fall clouds as they lower themselves onto the backs of the hills, an unseen hand reached down and removed at a stroke everything that makes up the minutes of your life and left you in the stripped yearning of a bare night. And then, in the cold initiatory shiver of a new dawn, that same hand returned your life to you in discreet items like clothing on hangers and shoes in boxes. What would you choose to keep for that expedition we call our life? And more important, what, finally, would you choose to leave behind? That poem was written around the year 2010. Um, so eight years after the Rites of Passage. I hadn't really listened. I'd heard but not heard. And something in my inner world was stirring again. And that poem was, was one of the stirrings. That sense that events external to you or possibly internal within you could remove at a stroke everything that makes up the minutes of your life. I think I had in my mind too that my father had a stroke um, when he was 60 and he had to retire from work and his life completely changed. 
there are those moments where things change and you have to take stock. And I think the encouragement of the poem was, why not do it anyway? Why not do that taking stock um, in your imagination? And then in the cold initiatory shiver of a new dawn. And I think I was yearning for something to upend me. Another voice that I want to be in conversation with who we've already heard from is is Carl Jung, the great map maker of the soul. He uses a word, enantiodromia. In Greek, enantios is opposite and dromos is running course. So to change the running course. It's a principle that he defines as the emergence of the unconscious opposite in the course of time. And I think that my poem Taking stock is an example of an antiodromia. In my conscious life, I was seeking to be really in control, really knowing what I was doing, developing expertise, not listening to the idea of, of raising my family, tending my garden and learning how to let go. And this poem was then enacted in my life, as you'll see in further episodes. And it's also that idea that whatever you stress in conscious life, you will be also feeding in some way. It's opposite in your unconscious. So if you stress control, chaos will be somewhere in your unconscious. If you stress calmness, there'll be turbulence somewhere. And, and part of the purpose of life is to balance the opposites rather than to stress one and ignore the other. So this taking stock poem is the beginning of trying to realise that in all this effort to be on top of things, to be a wise person, there was a need to become helpless, foolish, to stop. And aren't there times when we need to stop? A voice about stopping that I want to um, be in conversation with during these podcasts is that of Thomas Merton. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a... Um, I think he was born in this country, actually, or maybe it was France. But he moved to America. And he was a clever... He went to Oxford at one point, very bright young man, very engaged, became a Catholic, had a conversion experience and went on a journey towards becoming what he became, a monk in the Cistercian order of the Catholic Church uh, in a monastery in Kentucky called Gethsemane. He wrote a very famous autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain that in the 60s, which is when he lived, was uh, very influential among young Catholics. Um, it was the time of the Second Vatican Council, so the church was changing and... His is a voice a bit like Jung's, maybe not so powerful as Jung's, but like a man born out of time, he, he, he's, he's, what he writes feels just as relevant now. And I want to, he, there's, there's a lovely book um, called A Year with Thomas Merton, Daily Meditations from his journals that's been compiled, and, and this is one of them. It's called The Fellowship of Stars and Crows. 
Bright morning, freezing but less cold than before, and with a hint of the smell of spring earth in the cold air. A beautiful sunrise, the woods all peaceful and silent, the dried old fruits on the yellow poplar shining like precious artefacts. I have a new level in my elementary star consciousness. I can now tell where constellations may be in the daytime when they're invisible. Not many, of course. But for example, the sun is rising in Aquarius and so I know that in the blue sky overhead, the beautiful swan, invisible, spreads its wide wings over me. A lovely thought, for some reason. Since Hayden Carruth's reprimand, I have had more esteem for the crows around here, and I find, in fact, that we seem to get on more peacefully. Two sat high in an oak beyond my gate as I walked on the brow of the hill at sunrise, saying the little hours. They listened without protest to my singing of the antiphons. We are part of a menage, a liturgy, a fellowship of sorts. The kind of end of Merton's journey was to become a hermit. He lived in a small hermitage away from the monastery in the woods. And these journal entries come from that period. This is a man who'd learned how to stop. <laughs> he never really stopped because he was a writer. He couldn't stop that conversation with the outer world. But he certainly lived on the cusp between the inner and outer realm. And you can hear it in that meditation. The old fruits on the yellow poplar shining like precious artefacts. The fact that he knew the beautiful swan spread its wings over me. A lovely thought for some reason. He had time to think, to ponder, to listen to the synchronicities of his life. And the bit at the end, there's an, an antiodromia here about the crows. Whoever Hayden Carruth is, He'd obviously reprimanded him to have more esteem for the crows or like more esteem for the darkness, for the things crows are symbols of, um, of, of the darkness, of the shadow, of the things we find difficult. The ravens, they were a messenger to Odin. Um, he, Hoonin and Moonin, Hugin and Moonin brought him messages from around the world. They are... Uh, creatures of dreams as well as of the underworld they're on the cusp between the inner and outer realm as many animals are in our dreams and in reality so that piece is really um, speaking to us about that which we ignore that's that which we push down into our unconscious to pay attention to it. So there's always this movement going on inside us where the inner and the outer are countering each other, are speaking to one another, and we're caught up in that dynamic of conversation on the cusp of two realms. final voice I want to be in conversation with 
is the voice of Mary Oliver, just a wonderful American poet. She lived in the full glory of nature and wrote from her vantage point of living in that full glory. And she says this in a, a poetry handbook. It's about writing poetry. But she says this. Early in my life I determined not to teach because I like teaching very much. I thought if I was going to be a real poet, that is, write the best poetry I possibly could, I would have to guard my time and energy for its production. And thus I should not, as a daily occupation, do anything else that was interesting. Of necessity, I worked for many years at many occupations. None of them, in keeping with my promise, was interesting. Among the things I learned in those years were two of special interest to poets. First, that one can rise early in the morning and have time to write, or even take a walk and then write, before the world's work schedule begins. Also, that one can live simply and honourably on just about enough money to keep a chicken alive, and do so cheerfully. This I have always known, that if I did not live my life immersed in the one activity which suits me, and which also, to tell the truth, keeps me utterly happy and intrigued, I would come some day to bitter and mortal regret. I would come some day to bitter and mortal regret. Interestingly, in that book that I've just read from, the... Um, the page is marked with a train ticket from my journey back from Assisi. I remember reading it on the train and thinking, that so speaks to me. Again, it was one of those hearing and not hearing. I didn't fully take it on board, but it hit me right in the soul, in the depth of my soul, those words that I would live a life of bitter and mortal regret. So I want to finish with this great piece I'm going to read from uh, a book called A Thousand Mornings that she wrote later on in her life in these podcasts. It's called The Gardener, <laughs> appropriately, synchronicitously. The Gardener. Have I lived enough? Have I loved enough? Have I considered right action enough? Have I come to any conclusion? Have I experienced happiness with sufficient gratitude? Have I endured loneliness with grace? I say this, or, or perhaps I'm just thinking it. Actually, I probably think too much. Then I step out into the garden, where the gardener, who is said to be a simple man, is tending his children, the roses. Then I step out into the garden, where the gardener, who is said to be a simple man, is tending his children, the roses. So I leave you with those brilliant words. Tending our children, being a gardener, learning to let go. Whatever those metaphorical statements mean to you, they've certainly shaped my life. I wish you good travelling, to hear your own call of the unwritten, and to be on the cusp between the inner and outer realm to live fully in that synchronicity 
the interleaving of inner and outer worlds. Till next time. Thanks. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.